Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. And we'll pick up at verse 21 and read to verse 37. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old, you shall not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has anything against you, leave there thy gift before the altar, Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, you shall by no means come out thence till you have paid the uttermost farthing. You have heard that it was said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offends you, Cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. It has been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your word be yes, yes, no, no, for whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for this word from your son, this piercing word so sharply and clearly was brought forth 2,000 years ago and still rings today. I pray that this morning, Lord, you would speak to each one of us, that you'd give us ears to hear. I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to understand what it is that your Son was saying. Change us today by what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've all probably heard of the expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Maybe some of you have also heard of the expression, if it ain't broke, the government will fix it until it is. <laughs> right? The quote originated apparently in the early 20th century in the southern United States, and it was popularized by, ironically, a government official, Bert Lance, who was actually an administrator in Jimmy Carter's uh, administration. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
it's very self-explanatory. If something is working, if something isn't broken, then don't tamper with it. It doesn't need to be improved. Something that's not broken doesn't need your attention. And it's employed because when we tamper with things that aren't broken, we usually break them, right? How many of you remember when, uh, back in the days of television antennas, it was working fine. Why did you mess with it, right? <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, in this section that we just read, Jesus is clearly fixing something. Jesus says, you have heard, but I say unto you. This is what you've been taught. This is what you've heard, but I say. Jesus is correcting something and fixing something. Their understanding of what they've heard to what is actually true. The people had been taught by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And they were teaching the people about the law of God. These people felt, well, when we look at the Old Testament, we notice that because we don't obey God's law and do what God tells us to do, God disciplines us or punishes us. And we were destroyed by the Babylonians. He's brought us back graciously. It's time now for Israel to start obeying the law. And so they took the reins of the nation and said, we're going to teach people how to keep the law and what the law is all about, what righteousness is. The Pharisees taught the people to look to them as their example. The people looked up to the Pharisees as righteous. So picture in your head the average Israelite in Jesus' day, if you were to ask, you know, how should you be living your life? Or what does it look like to be righteous? They'd probably point to the Pharisees and say, those guys, they're the ones that we're supposed to follow. And anyone that's not like them, well, they're not living the way that they're supposed to be living. The Pharisees loved it like this. The Pharisees were self-righteous, and they had taught the people that what they were doing was obedience to the law. That's very important. They taught the people how to obey the law. Remember Romans chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is challenging this kind of an idea. He's challenging a Pharisee. He's saying, you, you, uh, you say that you're a teacher of the babes. You're one who has a, you're a light in the darkness for these poor sin, sinners. And you're the one who has the, the better knowledge. This is the way the Pharisees saw themselves. Jesus, Paul, the apostles, John the Baptist, the prophets, all challenge this kind of a thinking. Jesus is challenging the Pharisees' teaching that they had taught the people. He, they drew his fiercest denunciations, didn't they? It's often said, who is... Jesus most fiercely opposed to? Was it the raging alcoholics and the adulterers? It doesn't seem like it, was it? That was who the Pharisees were most fiercely opposed to. But Jesus was most fiercely opposed to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He was correcting the people's view of the law. Now, this morning I'd like to address something. Many people believe that the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly this section that we just read today, is Jesus' new law. Have you ever heard that before? That Jesus brought a higher law, it said, or a new law, or a spiritual law. Have you ever heard that before? It's commonly known, it's commonly uh, said, even in Christian circles, it's commonly said here in Utah, that, you know, the law was needing fixing. The law needed improvement. And Jesus came along to bring a new law, a higher law, something that was greater than what Moses had brought. This morning, I'd like to say very clearly that that is incorrect and absolutely false. That Jesus was not bringing a new law or a higher law than what Moses had been given by God. I'd like to point that out for two reasons. Number one, it's never said in the Bible anywhere or even insinuated that Jesus brought a higher law. Show me one verse that says that, you know, it was great what Moses did, but Jesus brought this higher commandment. Actually, the scripture speaks against that. Jesus had just said, I didn't come to dissolve the law. I came to fulfill it. 
and every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. Even the least commandment, if it's broken, men will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And from what he's just said, he flows into this section that we've read. He's come to establish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. And he challenges the people's view by saying, you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And this leads him into this discussion. So, number one, nowhere is it ever said that Jesus came to bring a new law. So to think that way is, is incorrect. God never had a problem with the law. Do you believe that? Do you understand? God never had a problem with the law. If you recall in Hebrews chapter 8, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about the law, he says, God found fault with the people, with them, in Hebrews chapter 8. So he said, a new covenant needed to be made, not like the covenant that I made at Mount Sinai, because they broke the law. Not because the law was deficient, not because I need to make a new covenant because the old covenant, you know, my rules that I gave, they just were a little deficient. They weren't exactly correct. So a new covenant needed to come with a new law. He doesn't say that. What he says is, I find fault with them. So his problem is not with the law, but with man. And Jesus' problem here is with men's interpretation of the law. The second reason why Jesus didn't bring a new law or that it's wrong to think that way is because if you think that the law is deficient, it shows that you fail to understand the law itself. If you think the law needed improvement, if you think Moses needed Jesus to come along and improve things, then your understanding of the law is deficient. Think of Psalm 119. I think maybe some homework. Everyone should read this week Psalm 119 and ask yourself if the writer of that psalm felt like the law was deficient. If you're familiar with Psalm 119, that's a psalm, the longest psalm in, in the Psalms, and it's all about the beauty and the perfection and the converting power of God's law. So let me just challenge you to read that this week. You can't hold the view that it's deficient in light of that psalm. Think about Matthew. Later on in Matthew, chapter 22, a, a Pharisee asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In the law. He's referring to the law that God gave through Moses. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Do you remember what Jesus says? He doesn't say, tithe mint and Annas, does he? He says, the greatest commandment in the law is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with all of your mind. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love. The law of Moses. The law of Moses. You think of Moses, maybe you've seen a movie of Moses with the Ten Commandments or whatever, coming down that mountain with all the lightning and the thunder and the smoke and the fire. He brings down the law of love. To love God. To love your fellow man. Jesus said, this is the two greatest commandments and all the other commandments hang upon these, meaning if there's anything else that can be said or commanded, they just come out of those two. If you can keep those two, you've kept it all. If you sin at any point in the law, it's a lack of love for God and a lack of love for your fellow man. The apostles continued this respect and this clear vision of the law. They were taught by Jesus. So in Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul says almost the exact same thing. He says, love is the fulfillment of the law. He says, if, if, if you have a commandment like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, he says, if there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice how Paul said, if there be any other commandment, 
It's almost a challenge. Here, you, you make up a commandment, and I'll tell you that it fits under this law of love that was revealed by God to Moses. So people that say the law is deficient, just ask them, well, you come up with a new commandment that doesn't fall under love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I find people that say Jesus bought a new law, they're often ignorant of the fact that loving God with all of your heart and loving your neighbor is even in the law. They think Jesus was the one who brought that, and he didn't. Jesus was discussing what Moses had already brought to the table. And that's why Paul in Romans 7 says the law is holy, just, and good. He says the law is spiritual. Some people like to pit Jesus' words against the law and say the law is kind of legalistic and, and, and non-spiritual, and Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is spiritual. Well, Paul says the law is spiritual, and brothers and sisters, Jesus was simply teaching the law in the section that we just read. He's explaining to the people what the law involves, what the law is really all about, that it's really all about love. It's not just about external obedience. The law is actually about the heart. You can't read the Old Testament and not be struck by this, unless you read it when you're intoxicated or something. You can't read the Old Testament and not be struck by the fact that God's contention with the people is that they don't have a heart for him and for other, other human beings. Have you ever noticed that? He says, you, you, you don't know my law. You, don't, you, don't, you draw near to me with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. Or you keep a fast, Isaiah 58. You keep a fast and you do all the right things, but don't you realize that what I really delight in is you caring for people and, and looking out for the poor and the needy? Don't you have a heart for them? You obviously don't know my law. So banish the thought forever that the law is just this deficient, legalistic, mosaic, uh, hard, cold, unspiritual letter. The law is about love. Turn with me to Matthew 23. So stick in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. This is when Jesus pulls out all the stops. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he's attacking the Pharisees' interpretation, but he's not attacking the Pharisees directly. He's talking about the Pharisaical view to the, to the disciples that are gathered there. And in Matthew 23, Jesus is directly addressing the Pharisees now. This is high confrontation. They want him to die. He wants them to repent. Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. But listen to what he says. He didn't say, but you follow the law, but you don't, you don't move beyond the law to something greater. He says, you tithe these things, but you have omitted what? You have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done and not leave the others undone. He's not saying the other's not important. He's saying there's weightier matters in the law than what you are teaching, what you're doing, and you're neglecting them. Mercy. Have any of you have ever thought that the law actually involves mercy. <laughs> it does. It would be involved in loving your neighbor. And we're going to talk more about that next week as well. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. See, one problem also with thinking that Jesus was, was bringing a new law and that the old law was merely external, as it's often said, is that the scriptures tell us that no one is justified by the law. Amen? No one is justified by the law. No one actually obeys the law. Well, if that's true, that no one obeys the law, but you say that the law is simply external and cold and hard, and the Pharisees were actually doing that, then we could say, well, the Pharisees were being obedient to the law. But the reality is, no one is obedient to the law. No one is justified by that, because the law demands heartfelt, heart-sourced love for God 
and for your neighbor. And not just some, but all. The law is a radical thing, brothers and sisters. How do you see the law? Let me ask you this morning. Let it be settled in your heart forever. How do you see the law? That law that God gave to Moses so long ago. Is that something that, as Christians, we have moved beyond? Is that something, as Christians, that we say isn't, isn't beautiful, isn't necessary, isn't spiritual? And that Jesus was the one who taught us about love? Or taught us to love? Let me encourage you to banish that thought. As Christians, we honor the law of God, just as Jesus honored the law of God in his words and in his deeds. So no, Jesus was not bringing a higher law, but he was correcting the false view that the people had because they were taught by the Pharisees. Just a quote from J.C. Ryle, pastor in England in the 1800s, he says, The Lord Jesus here explains more fully the meaning of his words. I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. He's commenting on the section that we just read. He teaches us that his gospel magnifies the law and exalts its authority. He shows us that the law, as expounded by him, was a far more spiritual and heart-searching rule than most Jews supposed. He says it perfectly there a far more spiritual and heart-searching rule than most Jews suppose. Another commentator, Bengal, writes, Christ restores the truths which the scribes had taken from the law and clears away the falsehoods which they have added. Do you see that's what Jesus is doing? Clearing away the falsehoods. So, brothers and sisters, we must understand what Jesus is doing here, that he's not bringing a new law, but that he's expounding the truth of the only law, if the Bible is going to make any sense to us whatsoever. I've seen it so many times that people who take that view, that Christ brought a new law, that just ruins their understanding of the entire Bible. To them, Christ just becomes a lawgiver. an example to follow. Basically, and I don't understand their reasoning because no one kept the old law, so how is it that we're going to keep this more spiritual and greater law that demands love from the heart? But as Christians, we understand that God's law is good, holy, and spiritual, and it condemns us. You're condemned by the law of Moses. You're not condemned by the Sermon on the Mount, per se but you're condemned, each and every one of you, by the law of Moses, because who can say that they've loved God with all their heart, all their soul, all their time, all their strength? They never use an ounce of their body or their being or their mind to do anything contrary to God's will. Who can say that? Who can say that any day? Have you ever had a day when you've loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And have you ever had a day or a morning when you've loved your neighbor as yourself. The law condemns us. And that's its purpose. The purpose of the law. You can't understand that you need a Savior and that you need Christ, and that you need grace until you realize that you are condemned by this law. As long as you entertain false views of the law, about its purpose or about what it requires, then you're, you're always never going to understand Jesus Christ. Show me a man who doesn't understand the cross, and there you'll find a man who doesn't understand the law. So let's look at this next section. In this next section, it actually goes beyond verse 7. It goes to the end of the chapter. Jesus points out six teachings of the Pharisees and corrects them. Jesus corrects six points of interpretation of the law. So this is not exhaustive. I don't think of this Sermon on the Mount as this huge exhaustive teaching of the law. But he's pointing out 
six things that he sees as necessary to teach the people about what the law truly is and what it truly involves. So we're going to divide this section into two sermons. So next week we'll tackle verse 38 to 48. This is one section. So let's start with the first one. Verse 21 to 26. Verse 21 to 26. The teaching of murder and relationship with your fellow man. The Pharisees taught, thou shalt not murder. So therefore, if you stick a knife in somebody's throat and he dies, you're guilty. That's what the Pharisees taught. You shall not murder. So don't kill somebody. Don't physically take their life. And if you don't physically take somebody's life, then you're obedient. How do you think most people in this world think? Don't you, don't you find that most people in this world think like the Pharisees do? If you ask someone, are you a good person? They usually say, yeah, I'm a good person. You say, why? Well, I haven't killed anybody, right? <laughs> don't they say that? Brothers and sisters, most people in this world think like the Pharisees, not like Jesus. As long as you don't kill somebody, you're okay. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and shows us that the law is so much more than just your physical behavior. But it has everything to do with your heart, that which is unseen to other men, but is seen to God. See, a person could look righteous before men, pure in even their own eyes, but to God's eyes, they're not pure. God knows the heart of every man. Christ is not moving beyond the law by saying this, when he says, even if you have hatred or anger, or if you curse somebody with your lips, then you're actually guilty of breaking this commandment. He's not moving beyond the law, but he's coming back to the law. For doesn't the Old Testament teach the same? If, if you even regard iniquity in your heart, then the Lord will not hear you. This is what the Old Testament teaches. Now here's the question. Why do you think that men are more concerned with external behavior than with the internal motivations of the heart? Why do you think? Why are men more concerned about the external than the internal? I think the answer is plain. Because it's a whole lot easier just to deal with the external, isn't it? How many of you know this from experience? It's easy to deal with your external behavior more than it is to deal with your heart attitude towards other people. And so if you want to boast, and if you want to be self-righteous, and if you want to think that you pass God's test of being a good person, then you're going to kind of turn a blind eye to the internal, and you're just going to look to the external so that you can pass. You're going to lower this God's standards. I haven't murdered anybody. And I'm okay. Well, what about the heart? See, behavior is actually quite easy to deal with. Behavior can be curbed. Behavior is curbed all the time. A person doesn't steal because police are around. A person doesn't shoplift because of security cameras. A child doesn't hit his sister because his parents are in the room. Behavior is easy to be curbed. The heart is a completely different matter. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of Jesus. If your heart is not pure, if your heart has anger, then you're guilty of this commandment. And he says here, you're guilty of the judgment. That's what you would have been guilty of in that day if you had killed somebody. The council or the Sanhedrin, if you had killed someone important, hellfire. That's pretty intense, isn't it? The real issue before God is the heart and how we all fall short. Amen? How many of you just know you fall short? Your behavior might look good before man. But how many of you know that your heart 
can be so full of anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, selfishness, lack of love for God and men, adulteries, thefts, covetousness. It's amazing how many things can come out of one heart. So when you read this, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it should show you what God requires and how you fall short of it. You should read the Sermon on the Mount and tremble. Say, if this is what God requires, then I certainly have not passed this test. Only when you look at obedience to the law from this perspective, not merely outward behavior, but inward behavior, will the Bible begin to make sense why God says that no one is righteous, not even one. Scripture says there's no one who's good in God's sight. The Scripture says that if a person doesn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're going to suffer the wrath of God. That does not make sense if you think like the Pharisees. Or do you think like many people in this world that I'm a good person because I don't kill anybody? Well, if that's true, then why would God send you to hell? Jesus is teaching us to think differently. God has a perfect perspective of your heart and who you are. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who will be just before me by the deeds of the law. They're all by nature children of wrath even as others. Are you listening to that? I think we're always never going to fully grasp that until we get into eternity. But one thing we can choose to do here in this life is to listen to God when he speaks because he has a perfect perspective. And ask him, God, please show me your perspective. Help me to listen to it and not just go by what I think. Jesus mentions hell here, hellfire in verse 22. This is the first mention of hell in Matthew and in the New Testament. And the Sermon on the Mount is packed with discussion about hell. It's often pointed out that Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible put together. Do you believe in hell? Is hell real for you? Did you know that hell is real to Jesus and real to the apostles? Hell is real to God. Without hell, you don't need Jesus. If there was no hell, either if we were all just annihilated when we die, and this was the only life we had, then Jesus wouldn't have come and died for our sins. Or if hell was just a temporary period and we would all just go there and suffer for a while until all our sins were burned away, then we go to heaven. We don't need Jesus because we could just be reformed on our own. Or if everyone just goes to heaven because God's going to turn the blind eye to sin, then we don't need Jesus. But it's the reality of hell which is why Jesus came and died for our sins. So one thing the cross does show us is that hell is real. And Jesus says here, and listen to him, if you say to another person, you fool, you're guilty, and you deserve hell, fire. That's intense, isn't it? Don't appease yourself by saying, I don't kill anybody. Take a good look at the law and then ask yourself how you do. Beautiful thing here, though, in verse 23 and 24, this is coming out of what he's just said. He says, therefore, if, you're, if you bring a gift to the altar, there remember that your brother has anything against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go your way. Be reconciled. He says, first be reconciled. Notice the priority of Jesus. Notice the priority of reconciliation to Jesus. This is really a beautiful thing. Make reconciliation with other people a priority in your life. This is what he says. Isn't that beautiful? First, go be reconciled. Reconciliation is something that's dear to the heart of God. Broken relationships, anger, strife, bitterness, these things are wicked to God. But what is beautiful to God is when men 
forgive each other and are reconciled to one another. Notice how relationship is more important to God than ritual. Relationship is so important to God that he sent his own son to die on the cross for us so we could be reconciled to him. He says, do it quickly in verse 25. So, prioritize reconciliation and do it quickly. It doesn't mean that your adversary will be reconciled to you. But do what you can to be reconciled to all men. Paul also teaches that as well. This is actually a teaching right out of Leviticus. In the exact same passage where God says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, don't slander other people, but love your brother. Don't hate someone and not rebuke them. Love your brother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this really shows us how God values mankind. Because let me ask you, why does God say not to murder in the first place? Why do you think that murdering someone is wrong? Is it just some arbitrary command that God gives? He could have said anything, but he just said don't murder, so don't murder because then you're going to be disobeying God. Or does God say don't murder because he values and cares about people? He actually values the life of a person, right? And so he says don't murder. But he also says don't be angry and call someone a fool. Why does he say that? Is it just arbitrary? No, because he cares about that person, not just their physical life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That God cares about you. God cares about every person in this world. And he's not just concerned about their physical life. Don't take away their physical life. He also says, don't call somebody a name. Don't call them an idiot. Don't call them a fool. Why? Because he cares about them. Beautiful, isn't it? How many of you know when you've called someone a name that you love. Now, it's easy to call someone a name that you don't love and you don't give it a second thought. But if you love someone and call them a name, you usually are feeling pretty bad about that later, aren't you? Oh, I shouldn't have said that because I really care about them and that probably really hurt them. This is why God says, don't call someone a fool. Because he cares. And he shows he cares because he laid his life down for each one. Verse 27 to 30, this is the next one. Also in the same vein of loving your neighbor. We need to break out of thinking of the commands as just these arbitrary commandments that are isolated from one another. Every command, Jesus said, comes upon, comes out of loving your neighbor, loving God. So this next command in 27, you have heard that it was said you shall commit adultery. Now think loving your neighbor. Don't just think, I need to keep myself sexually pure. Okay, that's one aspect. But if that's all you think about adultery and lust is just a, an individualistic, me-centered view, you're missing it. This has to do with relationship and loving your neighbor. Everything is relational. The Pharisees taught, as long as you don't commit adultery, you're okay. And so I'm a good person because I haven't been with anyone else's wife. So I was good. Righteous, look to me as your example. They thought they were good, but not so to Jesus. He says, to even look with lust is committing adultery in your heart. Isn't that amazing? To even look with lust. One dishonors his neighbor with more than just the physical act of adultery. that make sense? How many, how many uh, married men out there or engaged men out there or men with a, a girlfriend like the thought of other men lusting after their wife or spouse or fiance? Hands? Not usually. How many women like to be lusted after? God says, to look with lust is to commit adultery in your heart. You haven't done the physical act, 
but you're hurting that person and other people just the same when you do that. And so in that view, you're an adulterer. So you see how beautiful and holy the law is and how we're all condemned by it. This condemns us all because it's not just our external behavior it's getting at. It's getting right to the core, the source of our behavior, the source of adultery, the wickedness, the covetousness, the desire of the heart for that which is not ours. This is no little matter to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 29. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better for you. Now, consider Jesus' perception of hell. It's better for you to go into life missing an eye or missing a hand than for you to go into hell with your whole body. So obviously Jesus is warning us about the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of hell. He also repeats this in Matthew 18, this very same passage. He says, if your eye offends you, cut it out. Except there he says, if your foot offends you, cut it off. So this was obviously a common teaching of Jesus. He's teaching us by this saying, not literally to cut out your eye or your hand or your foot. But he's teaching us through this illustration of the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of hell. Do you think of sin the same way Jesus thinks of sin? It's so bad, you should cut out your eye. It's better for you to lose a hand and a foot than to sin and go to hell. That's what he's saying. Verse 31 and 32. Another important relational point. Everything here has to do with relationship. He says, It has been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Now, in the law of God, Moses allowed divorce. He permitted divorce. And in Jesus' day, just like ours, this was a really touchy subject. And few things are more touchy than this, I think, because of the intensity of what marriage is and what it means, and divorce. And in Jesus' day, there was two different views about divorce. There was a very strict view on divorce, that you were only allowed to get divorced if there was fornication. And under no other circumstances can there be divorce. There was a very liberal view that was non-strict, that was the most popular in Jesus' day. And that was that you can basically get divorced for any reason if you get upset with your wife for anything. And it's, it's often out that there's actually writings that said, if your wife burns your food, you can divorce her. That's a, that's a sufficient cause to say goodbye. <laughs> and that was, that was the popular view in Jesus' day. You, you probably noticed when Jesus was talking about divorce uh, to his disciples later on, they said, well, if that's the view, then it's better not to get married. Even the disciples had a hard time with Jesus' teaching. So there was a strict view and there was a more liberal view that most people believed in Jesus' day. It's interesting here that Jesus actually sides with the strict view of divorce. He says, basically, that if you get divorced for any reason other than fornication, then you, first of all, are not permitted to divorce. That's a false divorce. And therefore... If you guys marry again, you're committing adultery. Such is Jesus' view of divorce. This is sounding again the cry from Malachi, the prophet. I hate the divorce, the Lord says. I, the Lord, hates divorce. He hates it. The only ground is fornication. Jesus even says that's just kind of a, an allowance as well. Because ideally, you shouldn't even get divorced for fornication. That's a sufficient but ideally, what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. That's God's view. I hate divorce. One thing that is amazing about Jesus is that and I hope you've noticed this, and I, I hope you can think about it 
and see how beautiful this is. But Jesus holds the law. His view of, of sin and his view of the law is very intense, isn't it? He's very strict when it comes to his view of law and sin. If you are looking with lust, then cut your eye on out with your hand. That's what Jesus said. And there's no grounds for divorce but fornication. And if you even say you fool to another person, then you're worthy of going to hell. Jesus was not liberal when it comes to sin or the law. He was very strict. And yet, at the very same time, he was full of mercy. Isn't that an amazing thing about Jesus? He's extremely, his view of the law is perfectly strict and intense. And yet he's absolutely, at the same time, full of mercy, which means that the mercy of Christ isn't due to him slackening the law. Very important. The fact that Jesus ate with adulterers and embraced tax collectors and went to their house when the Pharisees said, no, we can't go eat with them, isn't because Jesus, one iota, one jot or tittle, slackened the law. He says, yep. Look with lust, you deserve to go to hell. Call someone a fool, you deserve to go to hell. Get a divorce when you shouldn't have, you're an adulterer. However, I'm full of mercy for sinners. Without in any way slackening the justice of God. And how is this so? Brothers and sisters, it's absolutely impossible without the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is how Christ can honor and magnify the law and tell us the reality of what sin is and tell us the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of hell and how every little commandment will be fulfilled and upheld. And that sin is so serious it deserves this kind of punishment. The cross of Christ is how Jesus can say those things and yet love and forgive and be merciful to sinners. But without the cross, you have nothing left. If you want to be merciful, you have to slacken the law. You have to do what many people in this world do, is they just embrace people, but they just turn a blind eye to sin and say, oh, it's not really sinful, it's not really a big deal. Everyone's a good person in this world. So they have an appearance of mercy, but it's not really mercy at all. It's really just carelessness and leniency. They're not seeing that sin and being merciful. They're just ignoring that sin. The other view, of course, is you just hold on to justice and separate yourself from sinners like the Pharisees. So here's your two options without the cross. Become a hypocrite and separate yourself from sinners or just embrace sinners without a sense of justice at all. But with the cross, it changes everything. Because the cross means that God in heaven looks upon you and sees you as a guilty sinner and realizes that your heart is corrupt and that you deserve hellfire and that you don't love him and your neighbor and yet he loves you without slackening justice because this is the gospel message brothers and sisters God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to what? send us a higher law and get us into more trouble to die on the cross for our sins he became sin for us who knew no sin he had no sin, tempted on all points, and yet without sin. And he came into the world because he loves you. And let it be known this morning, once again, that yes, you're a sinner, but God loves you. And God's love for you isn't turning a blind eye to your sin. He loves you, and that's what makes his love amazing. It's amazing because it conquers our sin. It overcomes that barrier that would separate us. And it shows us how much he loves us. He loves you so much that he took your place so that you could live. As we sang about it this morning, Jesus paid it all. Praise the one who paid my debt. Isn't that beautiful? If we slacken the law like so many do, we would also lose a vision of the amazing love of God the amazing grace of God. Amen. Does that make sense?
next time you sin, don't try to explain it away by saying, well, here's my excuses, and at least I didn't do this. And everybody does it, so God, he's just going to be lenient. Call it what it is, and say, you know what? I sinned, and I, I do deserve judgment for this. And yes, I'm a wicked person, but however, God loves me. His love for me is full of grace. He doesn't treat me as I deserve because he cares about me and Christ's blood was shed for me so I could be forgiven. Forgiven justly. If we confess our sins as sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it means to become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you just confess your sin and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. As long as you're playing the religious hypocritical game, pretending that you're a good person, pretending that your sins aren't that big of a deal, then you're just saying, God, you stay at arm's length. I'm, I'm righteous on my own. And I don't need you. Lastly, this section about oaths and not falsely swearing. The issue is not profanity, but pronouncing oaths frivolously. The law says if you do make an oath, fulfill it. God pronounces oaths. Jesus and Paul both did. This shows us that Christ isn't necessarily saying that an exhaust, he's not making an exhaustive statement that all swearing is sin. But in Christ's day, this is how men operated. The only kind of swearing that they felt was binding was if you used God's name. It's actually what the third commandment is all about. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And if someone said, I, I swear in God's name I'll do this, or I swear in God's name this is true, then they would think it was binding. But the reality is in their day, or the custom was in their day, that they would swear by a million things and actually say it's nothing if you didn't actually do what you said you'd do or if it didn't turn out to be true. It was just kind of something you'd, you'd say to add weight to your words, but there was always a back door out. You actually see this in Matthew 23. Jesus hits on this again. He, he says, you got to say that if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. Right? Or if someone swears by the temple, it's nothing. That's what he says in Matthew 23. And then he says, you fools, you hypocrites. What makes the temple holy? What makes the altar holy? And so here he says, don't swear by heaven, because they'll say, you know, I swear by heaven, I'll, but it, did, it just was not binding to them. It was meaningless. Because that's God's throne. Everything is connected to God. The whole purpose of this is to do away with dishonesty and frivolous speaking and to put honesty and truth back where it should be. It's not nothing when you say something untrue. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more of this comes of evil. So honesty. Being dishonest is again breaking the law. How many of us are guilty of that? God, it says in the scripture, will hold us accountable for every word that we speak. That's how the law is going to work. You stand before God on judgment day to be judged by your works. He's not just going to take into your account your external behavior, also your words and your heart. We'll all be found condemned. So in closing, I'd like to just point out five things to be learned from the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, it's the truth about morality that concerns us, not public consensus. Number one, it doesn't matter what people think. It only matters what God thinks. It doesn't matter if the government of this land says something is okay. It matters what God says is okay. And if your religious leaders, even, maybe your church leaders, 
say that divorce is okay in certain circumstances or that as long as you just don't kill somebody, it's okay. Don't listen. What should concern you is what is truly moral in God's sight. That's the first lesson to be learned from the Sermon on the Mount. Number two, we also learn that God is exceedingly holy. His standard is extremely high. In fact, one sin disqualifies you from being righteous in his sight. One sin, it says in James 2.10, makes you guilty of all the law and makes you a lawbreaker. God is exceedingly holy, my friends. His standard is absolute perfection, as we're going to see next week. That's one thing we learn from the Sermon on the Mount. Don't lower the standards of God. If you do, the Bible's not going to make any sense, and you won't understand the cross. Number three, we learn that men are generally ignorant of these things. Let us understand that, for the most part, the world thinks like the Pharisees, not like Jesus. That's how we all naturally think. It's all how we all naturally want it to be. I'm a good person because I don't kill or commit adultery. Men are generally ignorant about these things, but we need to listen to Jesus. Number four, what we learn is we all desperately need the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the whole purpose of the law of God, as it teaches us in the New Testament. Everything Jesus is teaching here, he's teaching the law of Moses. And the purpose of the law, the purpose of that standard that was given from God through Moses, which is summed up in loving God with everything you've got and loving your neighbor, the whole purpose of it was not to give you a way of salvation, but it was to show you your sin, and it was to show you your need of a Savior. That was the whole purpose. So as you read this, see yourself as guilty, understand, confess, and realize this teaches me that I need grace. This teaches me that I need Christ crucified. This teaches me that I need a substitute. This teaches me that I need God to forgive me and treat me in a way that I don't deserve. That's the purpose of the law. And lastly, as Christians who have been forgiven of our sins, and as Christians who have accepted Christ and have been justified by faith in him, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, let us learn that these things are good to do, but not out of fear, but out of the freedom that we have as Christians and out of thankfulness to God for what he's done for us, and out of love for God that's inspired at the cross. So as a Christian, when you read this, you shouldn't ignore it. Now that I'm a Christian, I don't really need to care about the Sermon on the Mount anymore. But as we read it, we should say, uh, this is true morality, but I no longer need fear, condemnation. And these things, if we do them, let us do them from the heart, and not Do you think the law is broken? Then you're going to try to fix something that doesn't need to be fixed and you're just going to make a big mess. Or do you see that you are broken and you need to be fixed? The place to be fixed and healed and cleansed from your sin is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is amazing that you can say these things so clearly, so shockingly, and show us how high and holy the law is and how strict it is and how it condemns us all. And yet you say, you didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it because you love us. And Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you will tell us the truth. Help us to see that these words are not cruel words to condemn us, but they're healing words because in love you tell us the truth about our state so that you can heal us, so that we could come to you and realize you're our hope, you're our salvation, you're our peace. I pray, Lord, today that you would cause us all to see how wide your heart is towards us, how much you love each one of us, God, even though we're sinners and even though we've broken your commands. Help us to see through Jesus Christ crucified 
that you love us and that you have open arms for all of us and you simply say, trust in me. Thank you that whoever puts their trust in you and in what you've done for them to save them will not be ashamed. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that comes through your your son and his shed blood. In Jesus' name we pray.